it's really important to look at where are the forces that the decision-making power is happening. So then we can actually move. So then the programs that all seem good do not get co-opted by the false framework of a centralized energy model. So we can look at a decentralized energy model. And I'm talking about decentralized energy model, not about the, the technology, but really about how decision-making power is being made. How are people being invited into at the table to make, to participate and make decisions together. For nearly five years, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance has produced a Community Power Scorecard, an annual evaluation of each state's policy environment with an eye toward enabling energy democracy and local action. But what happens when clean energy advocates in a state see their state's grade and disagree? In today's episode, we talk about whether a policy score is enough and how we might better evaluate how the -the on-the-ground experience aligns with the policies on paper. I was joined in March 2022 by Crystal Huang, co-founder and worker-owner of People Power Solar Cooperative, and the National Coordinator of the Energy Democracy Project, and Al Weinrub, Coordinator of the Local Clean Energy Alliance, to discuss the shortcomings of and the possibilities to improve ILSR's Community Power Scorecard. I'm John Farrell, Director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a bi-weekly podcast sharing powerful stories about local, renewable energy. Crystal and Al, welcome to Local Energy Rules. Thank you. Thank it you is very much. such a pleasure to be here. As I said in the introduction, the ILSR has been producing what we call our Community Power Scorecard now for, I think, about five years. And the intention behind this scorecard was to approach evaluating state clean energy and climate policies from a little bit different angle, really as from one component of the idea of energy democracy, which is how much are we localizing decision making? How much are we giving power to cities, to counties, to communities? to make their own decisions about clean energy. So that could be doing solar on rooftops. It can be community solar. It's the authority for cities to decide which fuel sources they can use for building heating and cooling and to have the power to prohibit certain sources, kind of a whole range of things around the idea of local authority. And in the in this year's scorecard, as if every year, we always grade states from A through F, and there are always a few states that get an A or a B uh, that score very highly on the scorecard. Of the four states that got an A in 2022, California was on the list near the top. And both Crystal and Al reached out about the scorecard, having seen those grades, and their reaction was, I don't know that that grade's appropriate for the work that we're trying to do, actually making sure that this community-level policy is effective. And so I would love to hear more about what it is that they see as the shortcomings of the way that we're doing these grades and see if we can have some conversation about what what ways we can more effectively track and understand the progress of energy democracy at the different states. So Crystal, I would love to invite you to just talk about kind of what was your reaction when you saw the scorecard giving such a good grade to California where you have done so much work trying to advance energy democracy and what's the problem that you see there? Sure. I mean, you normally when you see you get a grade A, you say, oh, yeah, I did it. We don't have to do anything anymore. We can relax and go on a vacation. But in reality, what I'm feeling is that over the past year at this point, or more than a year, energy democracy had been a really challenging struggle in California, especially with the net energy metering reform that's happening with the California Public Utilities Commission. It is a direct assault from the utilities. The private utilities are pushing to gut rooftop solar 
which in many ways threatens energy security and resiliency for low-income and BIPOC communities. But the way they're playing it, they use a lot of misinformation to confuse all of us and even co-opt the concept of equity to pit solar customers to non-solar customer. And we call it the utility power grab. This is an effort for private utilities to continue the current central centralized energy system that they get to rake in lots of profit in for and try to prevent our transition into a decentralized energy system that is centered around justice that we, we urgently need to get to. And the whole fight is in California is not just in California. We all know that net energy metering fight is happening all across the country. Florida just a few days ago had passed a bill to gut net metering completely. So this fight is all connected and it's hard to see it isolated state by state. And when we're just fighting within California, looking at as an A, and especially coming from a B last year, going into an A, it's very disorienting for me. It makes me question whether whether the fight is going to actually have any legs if someone, I mean, we deeply respect ILSR. So like if then people pit ILSR's report against our campaign, what do we do? What does that mean is a question that we have in mind. I mean, I think I had the same reaction to the scorecard when I saw it. It was like this uh, sort of like a shock. What? How did California get an A? So I mean, partly the thing is when we're, we talk about A, getting A to E's or whatnot, this is like when you're in school and you get, you know, you know, you get grades. So it's like an absolute grade. I mean, A is like the top 20% or whatnot. But, you know, I think from our perspective, an A in this case would represent about a 5% grade or maybe a 10% grade, not a 90 to 100% grade. In other words, there, there's something about something about the way this is framed that gives you the impression that in terms of where we want to go, uh, that an A represents largely getting there, where an A actually means, okay, that there are some policies, but it's a question of like the existence of policies is not the same as the actual implementation of policies and real effects on the ground. I mean, just, just to say, okay, Florida gets a D for a law I mean, Florida gets a D on the scorecard and they just passed a law which totally guts net metering. And then they say uh, the inspiration for that law came from California <laughs> and what's happening in California, which gets an A. All right, so wait a minute. A state that gets a D represents that their draconian measures, regressive, uh, comes from a state that got an A. There's something somehow amiss if that's what's going on. So. And I think Crystal sort of pointed to uh, the fact that policies in name don't represent actual political power on the ground. So the strength of utilities in the states is really an important criteria. Like to what extent does the utility uh, sort of dominate a state's energy policy? And then what the, the institutions in the state uh, actually represent. Um, so in California, it's true. We have many organizations that are doing advocacy around renewable energy and so on and so forth. And you can take about 10 of them and, and they get involved in some 50 proceedings at the State Public Utilities Commission, all of which uh, basically follow the, this basic principle. They set up a proceeding to deal with an issue. They ask the uh, utilities, 
how they want that utility, that issue to be resolved. They go through a one year or a two year proceeding in which they invite everybody to come and waste all their time. And then they decide on what it was that the utilities wanted to do in the first place. Now, you know, if that's your measure of community power, California gets an E minus, right? Because the state's public utilities commission is nothing but a blah, 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 you know, sounding board for what the utilities want to do in the first place. So the notion that the community has any power in this situation, you know, is like, you know, just seems like, uh, it's like, you know, that, that situation doesn't represent an A, is basically what we're saying. So it's uh, the different policies uh, are important policies, but how they got there, the extent to which they're functional, uh, the extent to which the community is really benefiting from them, like what metric is really being used at a community level. These are very challenging uh, questions. And it's not, it's not about the fault of what the scorecard is doing in principle, that, but the extent to which it actually really represents empowerment of communities around energy. I'll stop there, but I mean, those are some of my thoughts. Crystal, you just sent me an article this morning. I think it gets into this issue about the gap between policy and implementation. Could you talk more about that particular example? And I think you also have some other examples. I know that we've talked previously about the implementation of community choice energy, for example, for which California scores very highly on the scorecard and that is maybe not living up to what people would envision it being about. Yeah, yeah. So the article you're referring to is the article called What's Missing in California Solar Debate by High Country News, talking about energy justice advocates really pointing out the whole that is in making renewable energy accessible, which is community solar. And in many ways, that's the center of what the scorecard is rating, is community having power, localizing the decision-making power. And one of the main thing that's being mentioned in the article is about the only community solar law that kind of works in California, specifically for disadvantaged communities, called Community Solar Green Tariff. On paper, it's a great program that specifically gives benefits to disadvantaged communities. Is a flat 20, I mean, subscribers get 20% discount on the utility and the load serving entity basically procures the, these localized community solar projects. And, but then in, in practice, what it ends up happening is it follows the process of a very typical for-profit developer-centric process that is very fast. And so when we're talking about engineering, procurement, and construction, you, if you want community to have some sort of decision-making power, you cannot move in a way that for-profit developer comes and look at the land and then cut a deal. And you don't, there's very few, trans, very little transparency in terms of where the financial benefit goes to and how the design of the system will look and what the relationship between the developer and the installer and the load serving entity will look like. Communities are completely shut out of that. And what ended up happening in this article actually talks about a specific story in the El Dorado Park which is an unincorporated community near Fresno, California. They've actually had this amazing community solar project idea that they mobilized the entire community, which by the way is 93% of the community are renters. And they're all coming together to build a community project, community solar project using the specific 
policy and program that is designed for disadvantaged communities, just like the residents of El Dorado Park. And their proposal or the bid got declined, rejected twice. And you can imagine in order to put together a bid, you have to put in a lot of upfront cost. And the developers are able to do it because it's a high volume and very fast moving industry. But if you really want to move at a speed of a community and actually allow communities to, to work, you can't compete with that speed. And despite the difficulty, this group were able to put together the bid twice to move forward. But because the, the program is being administered by the investor-owned utilities, in this case, PG&E, and also in the process in which there's not designed for the community, it's not implemented, centered around the community, the policy and program on paper looks great. It falls flat. It ends up wasting a lot of resources for the community and end up creating more hurt than it is useful. And whatever program that comes out will likely continue to push community out and away from the table to make decision. And they continue to just be pigeonholed as a consumer that get 20% electricity bill savings. The empowerment is completely taken away. Al, I'm wondering if you could talk about another, I think, potent example of the gap between policy and implementation with community choice energy. Because I know Local Clean Energy Alliance has worked a lot on the policy concept of community choice energy and also on trying to implement it in a really community-centered way. And I think I interviewed Jessica Tovar a couple of years ago for this podcast about East Bay community energy and some of the components that, again, on paper, the local business development plan that seemed like they really were realizing this benefit. But what has been your experience with how that's been implemented? Well, uh, Crystal's example was a good one around community solar. And just to point out, you know, around the community solar piece, I mean, nobody in California really knows about community solar. I mean, that particular program is a very much of a, like, I don't know what you call it. It's like a program that's very small and it's very bureaucratized. And California gets a score that's sort of tantamount to like Minnesota and Massachusetts and New York, where there's actually, you know, a lot of stuff going on in California, you don't see it at all. So we would say that we don't have any community solar law that really makes sense here. But yeah, community choice is another place where you got now about 23 uh, functioning community choice energy programs across the state, due largely to, you know, advocacy on the part of communities about setting up these programs and whatnot. And for people who don't know, community choice is basically a kind of program where a state decides that a community or set of communities or some jurisdiction can take over the uh, procurement part of energy and leave the actual delivery of energy up to the utility. You know, the distribution system and whatnot stays there. Sort of a kind of hybrid system where, okay, now you have a, a local community agency actually deciding about the procurement of electricity and, and uh, providing energy services. Uh, to the community. So, I mean, this on, you know, just in concept is a great opportunity to now really have put communities in the driver's seat of uh, shaping our own energy future. And so we have both a statewide organization called the California Alliance for Community Energy uh, that represents organizers and activists across the state who are basically uh, pushing for a notion of community choice that says, okay, the reason to have these community choice programs is really to basically 
promote local development of energy resources, like community power in that sense, you know, community resources, whether it's, you know, uh, energy generation or storage and energy efficiency and all that stuff, you know, to create those specifically for the economic and environmental and social justice benefits of communities, right? So that's, that's sort of the goal, that's the notion. And it seems like a great thing, but, but when you actually deal with this stuff in reality, you get these agencies that are set up, they hire people from the utilities who are the technology experts to come in. They could care less about what the community thinks because they actually know the way to run an energy system. And what, what do we know in the community? And what they do is they go and they replicate the utility model, almost look hook, line, and sinker, you know, the whole centralized model uh, based on a remote procurement of electricity and so on and so forth. Now, it's sort of understandable, but it's understandable from the point of view that the utilities, you know, have been at war with community choice and concept ever since. And the state's public utilities commission, you know, are, is sort of the attack dog for the utilities. Uh, so the fact that you have a community choice program in name, even that you have 23 community choice agencies, does not really signify significant motion toward a decentralized energy model and more democratic control of energy. In fact, here's an example in the central coast of California, which is a very large community choice district. The folks in the community really wanted to push very strongly for better uh, workforce standards for work that's being done around energy development and whatnot. And so they went to the community advisory committee, which is in many cases, these agencies do have advisory committees and they pushed, uh, they pushed in this direction. And so what did, the, what did the staff of the agency do? They, they put forward uh, proposals to basically gut and neutralize the community advocacy apparatus uh, because who is the community to suggest that we should have better workforce standards, you know? So it's just an example of how, uh, how the agencies don't function at all in a way that respects and brings in a partnership with communities, but actually it's hostile to the community. Uh, another example of this was, you know, like, you know, PG&E, which is, uh, you know, the largest utility in the state, uh, has all this excess <laughs> now nuclear power. So what was it going to do with this excess nuclear power? Let's push it down onto community choice programs. And you get community choice programs talking about they can take this, this nuclear power and add it to their mix. I mean, these are community choice programs that are trying to do renewable, safe, efficient, uh, reliable energy. And they're talking about, you know, taking nuclear power from PG&E as part of their energy mix. It's just totally outrageous. And uh, we actually did pretty well in winning that battle. We started in the East Bay and a couple other places. And we got 75% of the community choice uh, programs that say, no, we're not going to take that stuff. But even that we'd even think about it is crazy. So just an example, you know, just examples of how the, the, the measure in this particular scorecard is that if you have a law that allows for community choice, you get a seven. But what does that seven really mean? In California, which is, quote, the most advanced community choice, is really, it's a big fight. And then you get Illinois getting a seven where community choice in Illinois has been a vehicle for actually increased fossil fuel production in the state. I mean, what does that mean? And so on and so forth. So I guess there's just a sense to which we need to have a standard of community power that somehow more captures and represents the actual political fights and the political difficulties that are going on in the state. I talked for too long. I'm sorry about that.
I think that context about the nature of the implementation versus the policy is really important. I really appreciate that example of Illinois, too, in terms of if we were thinking about how those policies have been implemented, like you said, there's always this difference between what's on paper and what's happening. And there is a very, I think, strong bias in the scorecard to just say, if you have this policy, we check the box, you get a certain number of points. And the disadvantage in that, of course, is like you said, that then the experience of people on the ground doesn't match what the scorecard says, nor does it really serve, you know, if we're giving A's to states where there's a lot of work yet to be done, as Crystal said, are people ready to take vacation when, when there's actually a lot of work to be done? And not to minimize the difficulty. I mean, there's a lot of people who are coming up with scorecards of various kinds these days, because in the absence of being able to really achieve anything, what you do is create a scorecard. <laughs> I mean, I'm not blaming anybody about this, but I'm just saying a score, you know, like whatever, what does a scorecard represent? And then how can it actually misrepresent reality on the ground? It's a very, very difficult struggle we have in the United States around this, and largely due to the power of the utilities, of the investor-owned utilities and, and stuff like that. And I know uh, we're, we're all interested in, in, in trying to do that. I just thought of another example, uh, you know, uh, around stuff like in California where people are getting burned out of their houses, having their power shut off. The question of microgrids is a big issue, right? Being able to set up community-based microgrids. So even the state legislature passed a law that said we need to commercialize microgrids in the same way like, you know, solar has been sort of commercialized. And so the California Public Utilities Commission took that law. And that was really about communities being able to really establish microgrids, to give them agency to do that. California Public Utilities Commission took that. They asked the utilities what they wanted to do. The utility said, we want to set up fossil fuel generation at utility substations so that when we shut down, when we basically, we have these things in California called power shutoffs that the utilities do. They shut off power because they don't want to start a wildfire. So then when they do that, they can keep a distribution system uh, up and running by having a fossil fuel generator. I mean, it's like just craziness, you know, to think that we, we can't make any headway around trying to get really a community-based single customer microgrids built in California when there's such a crying need for it, you know, and how do you represent that in a scorecard? It's, it's really difficult, so. And, and I understand the importance of the scorecard in many ways is to provide the vis- visibility in which the political landscape of what's going on because it's so complicated like things are so complicated we're trying to actually move together in like create a movement to change the system we have to be able to understand what we're looking at and have a common shared commonality of the the view and then figure out how to strategically intervene and do the right thing and especially now we're talking about something as complicated as our energy system and then there's also energy policy i understand the importance of the scorecard and I think what we've discussed so far in many ways really points to the, the visibility sometimes we really need to look at beyond just policy. And because like, even when we have, like I mentioned earlier with the community solar law in California, every moment you have a community solar law, which by the way, in New Mexico, they just pass a community solar law. And what is going to happen, as they always do in every single place in this country, is that developers are going to swoop in and walk away with the money in their pocket and communities are left with just the crumbs, electricity bill savings. And that's the best they can get. So if we really talk about energy democracy, we really talk about localizing the decision-making power, we're really talking about the forces that is happening. This is not just about 
investor owned utilities versus public and municipal utility. This is more, not just about community solar law versus rooftop solar law. This is not just about like what are the programs and policy that needs to happen, but really recognizing the forces that's going on. And Al, Al's really great like storytelling and, and description of what's happening in community choice energy program is a perfect example. Like when you look at I mean, East Bay Community Energy is such an amazing, inspiring example when it started with a local development business plan. But if the force is still in this ideology and framework of a centralized energy model, either we're talking about a community choice energy program or community solar pro project, they're going to just be acting exactly the same thing that they say they're better at than the investor utility. They're just going to treat it as, oh, some way to get cheaper or decarbonize clean energy. But they're just as good as the investor-owned utilities that's burning the states down and not actually allowing communities to have a choice and build local economy. And so I think it's important from like my summary of our conversation so far, it's really important to look at where are the forces that the decision-making power is happening so then we can actually move so then the programs that all seem good do not get co-opted by the false framework of a centralized energy model. So we can look at a decentralized energy model. And I'm talking about decentralized energy model, not about the, the technology, but really about how decision-making power is being made, how are people being invited into at the table to make, to participate and make decisions together. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we discuss suggestions for evaluating state policy that invite the reader into the work about the role of institutional racism in undercutting the implementation of policy and the reason that urgency is a dangerous sentiment in advancing energy democracy. You're listening to a Local Energy Rules podcast with Crystal Huang, co-founder and worker owner of People Power Solar Cooperative and the national coordinator of the Energy Democracy Project, and Al Weinrub, coordinator of the Local Clean Energy Alliance about the opportunities to improve ILSR's community power scorecard. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts, and I, I obviously don't think that this is like your problem to solve. Just because you have this critique doesn't mean that I'm going to say, okay, Crystal and Al, you tell me how to do the scorecard right. I think that's my responsibility. But I'm kind of curious when you think about how you would get at that question of how are we tracking whether or not the decision-making is decentralized. Obviously, the policy itself is not accomplishing that, right? Having community choice energy or not having community choice energy, it 
opens a pathway. And that's, that's the way I sometimes think about this is, are we opening the pathway for the things to happen that we want to happen? Same with community solar. Like in Minnesota, we've got over 800 megawatts of community solar projects that have been developed. And nearly every single one is the same model of like a private developer. Customers sign up for a subscription discount on their energy bill. And it's, you know, maybe 10% or 20% off their bill. It's exciting in the sense that it's not utility developed, right? It is an alternative to that, but it is following largely the same model and the kinds of participation and access to that are restricted in the same way that things have been restricted for a long time. You know, they skew white, they skew wealthy, they skew toward, in, in the case of Minnesota, commercial customers. Do you think that there's an approach, for example, to this where we would more put more scrutiny on the actual policy? Like, are there carve-outs or intentionality around, like, marginalized communities, low-income communities, that kind of thing? Or is this really about thinking about a different component to the scorecard where we talk about implementation? And maybe it's not even a scoring thing. It's something where we go out and have some conversations with folks that work in those states and we say, okay, if we look at the policy environment, it's an A. But we're going to talk to you today about what does it actually feel like when you're doing this work? Like, what is that look like. So I don't know. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to stop talking because I'm just interested in hearing your feedback about how do you think we capture that in this project in a way that doesn't leave people feeling like either this doesn't speak to us or, oh, we're really disappointed that somebody who talks about being about energy democracy is in fact giving the public impression that we've already accomplished it. Crystal, do you have some thoughts about I do. Yeah. So I'm going to go a little spiritual here because we're talking about making change. And really looking at the word hope and really recognizing that. So the, the way I define and I see like the, what's the difference between optimistic and being hopeful. I think optimism comes with you looking at the facts and data and you feel optimistic about what's going, ha going to happen. Whereas hope is despite the fact that all the data is not pointing towards the right direction, you still believe that there's going to be some sort of positive. So you can be a cynical person but you can, you are hopeful. And I definitely put myself in that camp. And when I talk, when we talk about hope, I think it's important for people to understand that hope is not a static word. Hope is not just something that you can look at and be good. And I'm hopeful about the future. So now I'm just going to go watch TV and not do anything. Hope is a, is a verb. Hope is about how am I actually showing up and be hope. And I think when we're talking about a scorecard and creating a change, it's all about how can we actually create a condition in which people can show up and participate and build power? So how can a tool like a scorecard create a condition and engagement that people are like, okay, now I have the information I need, so I'm going to participate and be part of it. I think the danger of scorecards in general is that it creates a bystander relationship of my relationship with whatever I'm assessing, I'm just here watching. And I feel good or bad, but that's just their thing. And I judge you and I walk away. How can we actually create an environment in which the scorecard can allow people to lean in and participate more? And I've, I've seen scorecards done like that very rarely, but like Emerald Cities Collaborative's Energy Democracy Scorecard is designed in a way with facilitation guide that community any community members can come together and start to look at the different pillars of energy democracy and then do assessments. And an assessment is not just, oh, is it good or bad? Oh, no, it sucks because it always sucks. We live in a, our condition today right now is not good. 
So how can you actually create a condition where people look at the scorecard and not just feel depressed and go home and cry, but really feel like, okay, well, this is a situation and here are the strategic points of intervention that I can start to participate in with the community that I feel pulled in and actually create that tool to allow people to participate even more is, is how I look at a potential for a scorecard that could really, it's all about power building. How can we actually allow more people to lean in and participate and be the hope that we are hoping for? That's great. All right. So we've talked about kind of creating more hope or hopefulness, inviting people to like be part of the solution as, and, and I think you gave that great example of the Emerald Cities Collaborative Energy Democracy Scorecard that it has a facilitation guide. So it's not just a static thing that you look at and you say, okay, this is where things are today. It's saying, okay, how can I actually impact where things go in the world? One of the things I wanted to ask about in relation to that actually is, and this just comes of some of my own personal education in the past few years, about the results of historical discrimination. So we talk about things like redlining from time to time. We talk about things like Jim Crow laws and whatever. And there is, I think, this impression, certainly given when I was in school, that like we solved those problems and that the problems that we have today about discrimination don't have as much of a basis in history or there's no reason that we have to address them. And I guess one of the things I'm curious about is when we think about looking at policy implementation, one of the things that we're also trying to overcome is not just that barrier in terms of like who has the power in the system. I can't remember how you described it earlier, Crystal. I think I really liked the way that you said it, basically about this idea of how the power structure in the system still works. I guess I'm kind of curious how we think about all of the historical harms that have sort of accumulated, especially in communities of color, and how policy has to be designed to expressly address that if it's gonna be successful, and that if it isn't, if it's just sort of generic and like this applies to everybody, that it's likely to fall short. Well, I have some thoughts about this topic. The impact of uh, a race in this country, which is probably one of the strongest dynamics. I mean, oh, clearly, there's there's always been a fight between working people and the people who are the owners of stuff. You know, this class kind of struggle that's been going on in this country has been a dominant struggle. But within the U.S., I mean, racism has had a specific a very, very powerful uh, effect, and it has infused every aspect of life. So we talk about redlining and greenlining and all these things where, you know, there are whole structures set up to discriminate against people on the basis of race uh, and income. And that's certainly true in the energy sphere, especially in terms of fossil fuel energy. It's given rise to the whole environmental justice movement because uh, the impacts of fossil fuel development has been so distinctly focused on uh, the, the negative impacts, the harms, have been so distinctly uh, focused on uh, communities of color. And in the, you know, in, the, in the energy sphere, even in the renewable energy sphere, there's a continuing concern because, I mean, the way I would capture it is to say that the centralized energy model is basically that extension of uh, racial discrimination uh, into the renewable energy sphere, right? It is uh, the institutionalized forms of discrimination that take place. And most immediately obvious is that the, the impacts of the centralized energy model are to accentuate the harms of climate change. So for example, in California, where you have this whole centralized energy model and the abuse of it, you know, leading to wildfires and whatnot, who is impacted by the wildfires? Well, it's low-income people and people of color 
who get burned down, whose rates get thrown up, and whatnot. In every every impacted manifestation of the centralized energy model, including the fact that climate change. I mean, if you really want to address climate change, then building long power lines, you know, that are affected and attacked by the elements, by by floods and, and wind and fires and whatnot. I mean, you would really want to have resources close to home. The shutting off of power to millions of people really hurts low-income people the hardest and the worst. So, I mean, every aspect of the impact uh, from rising rates to fires to deaths and whatnot impacts low-income people and people of color most strongly. And that is an institutionalized form of racism uh, that we have with a centralized energy model. So um, this is just a way of saying that that this whole racialized uh, impact in any, every economic sphere is certainly true within the energy system. And so people who talk about addressing climate change uh, without addressing the racialized impacts of climate and energy are essentially just saying, well, the main dynamic that's shaping power in America, we're gonna ignore that in order to try to save uh, save the planet, that that doesn't work. That, that that doesn't really work. So the whole notion of a decentralized energy model is its ability to empower communities at the local level and to be able to address racialized forms of discrimination by empowering not just communities in general, but by empowering those communities who have been excluded from power. I think what I'm just trying to say is that the racial dynamic is a predominant dynamic. Uh, within energy. And so when we are talking about any form of community benefits, we have to be talking about the racialized impacts, not just the impacts in general. So it has to do with how any policy or whatnot, so say take net metering just as an example, like net metering is a, is a policy framework that in terms of its design was really meant to utilize investment in capital from our affluent families. So the direct impact of having Solar on rooftops has not been shared equally across all populations, but has been, you know, uh, you know, largely focused in, in more affluent households. If we're talking about, you know, residential rooftop solar, and, and that's a real problem. And it's an example of how policies that are implemented without an eye to racial discrimination uh, end up just increasing racial discrimination, and that's the problem. So. Shalanda Baker and her book, Revolutionary Power, really talks a lot about this dynamic and people should be encouraged to, uh, to read it. It's about the centrality of race in terms of trying to have uh, policies that are really effective and really work. And so uh, thinking about race as a secondary question is to make a big mistake. And we have actually seen that in this country where, you know, to address climate change, we've basically failed, right? I mean, we have not really move to a renewable energy structure. And that's because a majority of the folks in this country, largely uh, low income and people of color, don't see this as a really, like that energy policy is a key issue for them. Uh, right. And so they haven't joined a white movement, you know, to, to decarbonize because what's in it for them. And so to that extent, this question of race is the, is the key question, you know, social and economic, we'll put it this way, energy justice, you know, is key to solving the climate uh, problem. It's key to it's key to any really sustainable energy policy. That measure, you know, so one way that we could capture this is like within within the scorecard, for example, where is the measure of equity? As an example, right? There is no 
specific measure of equity. In some of the in some of the scoring, there is a notion uh, about some uh, some equity within some of the categories. But like equity should really be a primary way of measuring community empowerment because if it doesn't empower low-income communities and communities of color, well, then it's not really community empowerment in any real sense. Thanks, Al. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you have more that you wanted to add, but I have one other question for both of you about kind of an, another sort of tension that we have in the approach to how we do and deploy renewable energy. Yeah, well, I think a brief thing I do want to add is, I mean, I, I really appreciate the energy democracy framework that the work ILSR is focusing on in terms of like climate solution, because your audience understand that this is about democracy. This is not about decarbonization. And when your audience understands that, then we don't have to waste our time debating whether this is an earth science problem or a social science problem. I think I, I would be pretty confident to, to believe that a lot of your audience probably understand that the climate disaster is not about whether you're recycling in the kitchen or not. It's not about your individual decision. It is about a global imbalance that is rooted in the lack of democracy. It's, a, it's allowing some big corporations or some a big institution to come into somebody's land and start drilling for resources and take it for profit. It is rooted in our economic system, it's rooted in how we live every single day. So to separate the systemic racism from how we treat, how we want to redesign our energy system is missing the point of what democracy really looks like. I, I'm just affirming that I'm pretty sure your audience already understand all of this and the fact that we, any thought of trying to separate them is falling into the current economic framework and the culture in which we should separate everything. And having conversations that connect all of these like we're having here is the answer to advancing energy democracy, to truly understand the background, the systemic racism and how history continues to repeat itself until we come together and reach that common understanding. I just wanted to offer Al had a book mentioned there, Shalanda Baker's book, Revolutionary Power. And I would offer one thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently is I've read The Color of Money by Mirsa Baradaran, and she talks about the sort of intentional affirmative action that our federal government took in the 30s and 40s under the New Deal to help white folks and only white folks buy homes, basically propped up an entire system of ownership to build wealth for white households and black folks and other communities of color were completely excluded from that. And so it's, you can't, to, in my mind then, because that, and, and she goes on to detail how we really haven't ever solved that, frankly. There's, in fact, there's evidence today about still, it's still harder as a person of color to get a mortgage than it is as a white person, everything else being equal. And I think about that when you come back to what Al was saying about net metering, for example, right? That the, the no, notion of the policy is that private capital can do something in the energy system for their own benefit. And it's a beautiful idea. I love the sort of like market, you know, competition concept there. Like it's not just about the monopoly utility, but it's also very impractical and very inequitable if that's all there is, knowing that the system on which it's built has already been inequitable. So anyway, another book recommendation for folks if in terms of like understanding this, it's been very illuminating for me. I know we don't have much time left. In fact, we've literally only got five minutes before I have another podcast, but I want to ask about this I, this tension, I think that I see sometimes, and it's not necessarily tied to the scorecard, but I think it's sort of incorporated in this idea of implementation and something that I think you said earlier, Crystal, about 
kind of how we involve communities at the pace of decision making, you know, the climate crisis is really urgent. I think one of the successes of the climate and energy movement in the past few years has been to help people understand that we really have some serious deadlines here that we have to meet, that maybe the electricity system needs to be 100% renewable by 2030 or maybe even sooner. And so I think I see, I see increasingly orientation around the idea that we are in a hurry from a climate standpoint to decarbonize. And I wonder how that works with the idea of and I just want to say this for myself, I don't see it as incompatible with how we have conversations about involving communities, but I also feel like there's a there's a potential for that sense of urgency to allow our bias toward like centralized decision-making to continue. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll jump in and say that, you know, for centuries, indigenous people have been saying that the way of extraction is wrong. Indigenous communities have been trying to even just continue their way of living because they know how to live in harmony with nature, live in balance with nature. And systemically, our institution, our government try to remove that. And so where we're facing today is not, a, whoa, whoa, where did this come from? Some alien just came in or some meteorite is coming in. This is the result of something that the indigenous people have been warning for centuries. They might not have seen it exactly as it is, as we're saying it today, but this is the result of that imbalance that the indigenous community have been saying that we need to maintain a balance. So when we're talking about urgency, it was already the urgency of needing to produce agricultural-based society and removing indigenous people from the land and do whatever it is the colonizers need that urgency mindset that divides people and separate people from the relationship with the land, with the world, is the problem that is causing us to be in the climate disaster. So if we continue to move from fear, from urgency, we are continuing to move in the exact same mental framework that got us to where we are today. And when I'm talking about mental framework, we're still in some way in the middle of a pandemic. And, and on top of systemic racism, climate crisis, all of these are creating a lot of stress. And we're also seeing on the news, the way people react, unfortunately, all these crises that's continuing to bring, bear down in our communities, instead of trying to move in a way that is rooted in community and love, we're seeing so many people who are moving in one that's rooted in fear and zero-sum gain. I'm going to shut my door. I'm going to stop talking to people. I'm going to divide up. I'm going to protect my thing as opposed to how can we lean in and build and until we can figure out how to heal that trauma and move that fear away and start to lean in is the only way we can get out of this i think if we keep thinking this is an urgent thing and i don't have time to talk i have to protect my property i have to protect my thing and my legacy for my children and forgetting that all of us as human species we need to move together we're never going to get out of the suicide mission that we're on right now. I really appreciate what you said there. I love that idea about the fact that that sense of urgency is merely continuing the problem that we've gotten ourselves in and that we really need to think about a different way of doing things in order to be successful at solving the problem, like to get ourselves out of that rut. And it touches on a lot of different approaches to this, you know, the zero sum also a key principle, I think, in stopping us from being successful with a lot of the things that we're trying to do around community-based and, and democratic decision-making. I wish I had more time to talk to you both about this. I can say that I have found this really helpful in thinking about how we're going to 
iterate our scorecard the next time around and think about how it can be in service of helping people engage with rather than be bystanders, as well as thinking about this question of implementation. So more conversations to come, maybe even more podcasts, but Al and Crystal, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for engaging. Hi, you're welcome. We really appreciate the work that uh, you and other folks at ILSR uh, have been doing in this space for many years. Uh, a lot of people depend on it and uh, it's really valuable. Truly. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Local Energy Rules, where we discussed the Institute's Community Power Scorecard with Al Weinrub, coordinator of the Local Clean Energy Alliance, and Crystal Huang, co-founder and worker-owner of People Power Solar Cooperative and the national coordinator of the Energy Democracy Project. On the show page, look for links to ILSR's scorecard, the Energy Democracy Scorecard from the Emerald Cities Collaborative, and the High Country News article we discussed on the shortcomings of California's community solar program. We'll also have links to the California Alliance for Community Energy and to the two books we mentioned, Shalanda Baker's Revolutionary Power and The Color of Money by Mersa Baradaran. Local Energy Rules is produced by myself and Maria McCoy, with editing provided by audio engineer Drew Birschbach. Tune back into Local Energy Rules every two weeks to hear more powerful stories of communities taking on concentrated power to transform the energy system. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.